On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Tom Porter of Porter Cycles in Brooklyn, New York. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bicycle frame building world for about an hour, and we talk about their story. I try and help them tell their story. We talk about process and craft, uh, perspective and values, You know what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. Uh, so this week, my guest is Tom Porter, and, and he does Porter Cycles in Brooklyn, New York. He works as a fabricator a lot of the time for architects and designers, and he'll make furniture and all sorts of different things in his studio in Brooklyn. And he also uses that space, and he builds uh, Porter Bicycles. I saw him uh, at, for the first time at the New England Builders Ball in Boston about a year and a half ago, and I was across the aisle from him at the NABS show in Sacramento, uh, a year ago and he at that show he won the best new builder award which is pretty cool he had a bike there called winged victory which is you know a little bit of a like a art bike uh you know it's more than just building the same model bike for every customer and uh you know making it fit them or something it's it's a little bit I think more than that, a little bit more involved, a little bit more unique and personal. And so, you know, the, the bike has its own unique name. It's winged victory had a, a rack and all these other details and uh, really cool stuff that, that Tom is doing. When I met him at the new England builders ball, we had a great discussion and I knew when I started this podcast based on that discussion that we had in Boston, that uh, I wanted to have him as a guest on this show. And so we talk about some of those things that uh, I knew we would talk about. And so that's, you know, about, you know, feeling like an, an artist and, and trying to make this sort of expressive and artistic, uh, process. This, you know, could be a business. It could just be a, a passion or whatever. Uh, frame building can be a hard thing and a, a, an exhausting thing to go through sometimes. And so we talk about what that's like, uh, you know, when you have an idea of what you want to be doing and, uh, it's, it's not always easy. And so anyway, uh, I'm just going to get right into it. Really enjoyed my discussion with Tom. I hope you love it too. So effectively, like I'm a fabricator, like I, I make stuff out of metal for people. And I consider like the majority of my time is spent in a service oriented kind of way where like I do, I work with architects and I work with designers and, and different like institutions in New York. Um, but realistically, like the amount of time that I get to spend actually being a frame builder is is no compared to like the amount of time that I spend doing that. And, um, you know, granted that was part of my entrance into doing frame building was that I was, you know, a professional metal worker and, um, and I saw myself in a capacity where like my love of bikes and my love of making stuff out of metal would come together to make for a good frame builder, you know? Um, yeah. but that said, like I have major imposter syndrome. Like I, I started my first frame, I think was in 2010. It's now 2020. And I have, I have made, I don't know, like 25 bikes max or something, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas there's other people I know who make 25 frames every fucking couple months. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And granted, I know that there's a massive shift between different shops and whatever. And I'm not a production builder. I don't like knock out, 
similar frames and I really like going a little too far. Like I like fabricating my own lugs. I like, you know, doing stuff that's pretty time consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it boils down to it, like I, yeah, I mean, I, I hardly feel like I'm allowed to call myself a frame builder because of the percentage of time I really get to spend doing it. And like how many I've actually done in that time. Um, so it's challenging. Cause like, you know, I live in New York and it's not cheap to be here. And, um, so I feel like I really need to do business on like a bigger scale. If I'm going to have the kind of shop I need to have an apartment and to like be able to build bikes as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that I could survive on just building frames. Um, I would love to, but you know, I just don't see that as like really a viable possibility considering I support myself. And, um, and maybe that's a shortcoming on my part, you know, like this is something I actually really wanted to talk to you about is just the nature of like having confidence in yourself to be like, can I fucking go out and do this? Cause like <laughs> the time that we were hanging out, the time yeah. that you mentioned at the bike builders ball, like that was, I think the second time I had done the bike builders ball, I think that was the time I was showing winged victory. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And so like that was kind of a big turn of events considering the first bike builders that I had done. Um, I was showing a few frames I was really proud of. Copenhagen wheel had asked me to build a bike to showcase their stuff. And I had two frames of my own um, that weren't, you know, for them that were in my booth. And that was like my first ever show. And so a year later to be showing winged victory and like all of the acclaim that went around with that bike, that is the same one that eventually won me the award at NABS. Um, most recently when you and I were right across the aisle from each other, Mm -hmm. um, that's a huge shift over the course of a very short amount of time in terms of how much people were seeing my stuff or like the kind of response I was getting to it and, and my own confidence level in terms of what I was able to do. That's like, that was a big arc for me. Um, and so to circle back on the question, like, (sighs) I wish I had more people asking me to build bikes, you know? And I think maybe especially because of having won an award and like crossed the country afterwards and had a really fun bike ride to myself for a few months to like really think about it. Like I was really expecting to come home and have people like lining up to buy bikes mm-hmm. and it was just crickets. <laughs> and, um, and at the same time I, I came back from the three months, my first ever three months, ever away from like working all day every day since I was a teenager and had all this time to think to myself and like what I was doing and what I was going to be, you know, hopefully going to be doing when I got back. And I just got slammed with fabrication work and it was great. I had a really good year, but like I didn't do shit. I had a friend wait almost a year for me to build from when I started her bike to when I finished it very recently. Um, And so it just kind of threw me into this whole like, kind of shame spiral I think in my head about um here I am like having won an award and I got all this like attention and yet no one is buying my bikes yeah um and I'm still sort of in that spot where I don't know what to really make of that yeah in, in the time that I spent you know getting up to speed with bike frame building and doing it you know I took a frame building class in 2010 and I've built about 18 bikes or something so similar time frame and similar bikes as you in terms of numbers and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I never really felt like I was there and I always felt 
like I was an imposter and I certainly didn't ever have much success selling stuff uh, with, with bike frames anyway. And uh, I totally understand that. And I know from talking to all sorts of frame building friends and even, uh, you know, some of the folks who've been on the show and different people suggest the same sort of thing that it's just like, you feel like uh, an imposter or friends of mine who are really very good uh, frame builders you know, who maybe uh, are getting started, but like, they're really quite good at what they do. And then they, they say, I don't know if I can call myself a frame builder. And you know, that's like a, it's a real common thing, I think, because you get into it because you love it. And because you look up to the people who do it and they're so good at it, they've been doing it so long. Uh, And then, you know, it's like, well, then who am I? Right. (laughs) It's, it's a wild thing because I mean, on the surface, it's like, well, if you've built a bike frame, you're a frame builder. Like it's that simple. But then on the other hand, it's like, you know, you, you don't just do it to do it. You do it to like do it well and to, to do it with craft and with taste and with care. And, um, totally. it's a messy thing. It is. And I think that like, it's, you know, it, I'd say it's very like hand in hand with this, the feeling that I get around like being an artist, you know, or like, like I, I remember when I was younger and I was making artwork in my room and it's the stuff that eventually got me into art school as like a portfolio. And I remember having this thought and it's really distinct of like, you're an artist. This is not going to be easy. (laughs) You know, it was like the identity, identity like landed, like this is what you are and who you are. This is not going to be easy. (laughs) And like, and that stuck with me because the reality is like, like I had fantasies of, having a nice studio and like making fine art, you know, whatever that means. Um, and going to art school ruined art for me. Like I didn't want to be a part of galleries. I didn't want to be a part of all that stuff, but I still look at around and I'm like, man, I wish I was fucking showing up in the morning and just making sculpture and making cool installations and doing this stuff. And, and instead I, I was like living in my pragmatism. Like I got out of art school and I had, like failed a business that I tried to start. I had all this debt from school and from that. And like, you know, just this super disheartening trajectory coming out of that. Um, but my identity was still that I am an artist. I, I deal with things as an artist. I am a creative person. I can do anything. And, um, but there's an identity crisis with that when you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a similar thing with, with frame building where you're like, I have this creative drive. I want to do this thing. I, me personally, I don't love monetizing my creativity. Like my art was not sellable art, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I would, and I would self fund and I would do work when I had shows. Um, and when it comes to frame building, like I didn't, I've spent so much money between machines, teaching myself to run machines, materials, you know, the time spent, like if you add it up, like I will probably never pay myself back to that, but it's Mm -hmm. fine because I love doing it. And, and I get so much satisfaction from sharing these little tidbits. And like, thanks to Instagram, not only do I get to get feedback about this stuff, I get to learn a ton from looking at what other people do. Um, and I get the feedback that makes me feel like I'm a part of some kind of a conversation, you know, yeah. like I'm, I'm somehow adding to this grander discussion of making things that are purpose built, that are rad, they um, obviously have a lot of artistry that goes into them. Um, I don't mean just mine, like just bikes in general yeah. and so much thought and so much care. So am I satisfied with that? Yeah. And what I love to be able to like, you know, the bike is sort of the one place where I can imagine more happily getting to monetize my creativity. Cause it's, 
Yeah. It is a functional object, which is what I prefer to build versus the quote unquote, like functionless thing, which art is. And it's something that can change somebody's life. And it's like this like joy machine, you know, it's like the freedom machine. So yeah, like if people are willing to spend money on that and I get to be, make something that I think is fucking awesome, then sounds like we have a plan, except <laughs> there's no money in bikes, you know, it's like, yeah. Like I can, I can literally spend hours making a thing that a museum will pay me thousands for, and I can spend weeks making something that would make less money than that one object would, you know? Yeah. So what do I have to do? More of the thing, you know, what do I want to do? More of the bike. <laughs> um, it's challenging. Yeah. It's challenging. And it comes with an identity crisis, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I feel, uh, I, I totally know what you mean though, about like, um, if you were building lots of bikes or insert whatever, if it's not frame building, but like if you feel like you have a particular identity or aspirational identity and doing it is part of what makes you feel like you're really doing it, uh, you know, like going through the motions of it makes you feel like you, you've really seated uh, your position in that, in that identity or whatever, then, uh, you know, then it mm. always makes you feel weird when you're not doing it. Like for me, um, I've noticed so like whenever I sell anything from my business, it starts almost always with an email. It's either from my web store, a notification, mm. or it's someone emailing me through my website or they have my contact and they want to buy a bigger ticket thing that's not through the web store. And I realized that like part of that, it's a condition me to like conditionally check my email. And then like, it's this experience that like when I sell something, it just makes me feel so much more at ease about everything. Not just because of the money, like, of course, mm. of course that's part of it, but also it's like, it just proves to me that it's like, yeah, okay. Like I am what I say that I am and I'm really doing it. And like, I've definitely yeah. considered that, that it's, it's this, um, uh, it just it just makes you like less um, insecure about whether or not you're really uh, the thing that you tell yourself that you are or something. And uh, yeah, certainly <laughs> yeah, with, totally. with frame building, I it, um I, I think I if I kept doing it longer and longer, I would have uh, gotten some more speed up. But at the at the point when I kind of stopped even trying to have a public facing brand and sell bikes to the public, I had never really gotten much traction. Uh, creating a brand that yeah. had like customer desire. And I think most people have a really hard time with that because um, it's hard. It's definitely hard. You know, when you have bikes that you can buy for uh, really reasonable prices and uh, and the vast majority of society doesn't really get compensated that well for their time and their working lives, there's just not like not lots totally. of people who have that sort of uh, income to make those decisions. And so that means that like in order to compete against all these other very talented frame builders, you really have to have something that's fashionable, that's practical, that's, that's, you know, highly visible. It's, it's a tough thing. I know. And I'm, I don't think that I'm entirely practical that way. You know, it's like, I think I am very practical in some senses, but especially in New York, um, nobody even feels good about riding around on $200 worth of bike, you know, cause we all just believe that it's going to get stolen tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a kind of different class of people that doesn't mind dedicating part of their living room to their bike storage, you know, whereas a lot of people don't want to do that. And they just, they're like, you know, I have people come to me who are like, hey, where do I go to get a, a cheap bike? And I'm like, oh, well, my friend runs a shop. You should go check him out. And they're like aghast when it's like a $300 bike. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah. I'm like, it's a perfectly good, complete bike. And, he's, you know, it's like obviously made in a, 
assembly line in like Asia, but it's a perfectly good bike and you're balking at $300. Like I want three grand, Yeah, you know, like yeah, there's not that many people who are willing to do that, who aren't serious about supporting custom builders, knowing what it's like to wear a tailored suit, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. um, versus just going out and getting something off the rack. That's a lot easier to consume. Yeah. And I don't think that I make it easy for people to consume because I'm also into a high level of customization. Whereas I think it's a lot easier for people when you just are like, this is what I've got. These are the sizes I've got it in. You can yeah. get it in these colors. That's it. You know, mm-hmm. and that's a consumable approach. Yeah. Whereas if I'm like, what kind of bike do you want? Do you want to ride like this or ride like that? And it's like, somebody's like, I don't fucking, I just want it to look cool and go, you know, it's like, Oh, right. I need to just make you something that looks cool and goes. Um, so maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. I I don't think I make myself all that approachable, I guess. I think it's easy to get jaded too. Cause like here you are like pouring your heart and soul into it and you want it to be so good. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if you give people too many options, they'll kind of, they'll, they'll be, they'll be wowed and then maybe they will be overwhelmed and just walk away before they bought anything. That's definitely like, you hear that about, yeah. um, people who go to like a craft show or something and they have like 50 different pieces of jewelry on their little table and they're all gorgeous. And then there's another person at the next table that has two pieces and, um, they're both gorgeous and there's so much less selection, but it's like, it's easier for someone to walk, walk up and say, Oh, I'll buy this one. Uh, I, I don't know yeah. whether or not that's always true, but I've definitely heard that. And I think about that a lot with the custom bike buying process that like the fewer options you give someone granted that it still has to meet their needs. Right. But like, um, just from a sales right. perspective, I think that it just makes it a little bit simpler that you, there's that, the, uh, paralysis of analysis that like sort of comes into play when you have <laughs> too much, too much decision to make. And, uh, and we're all like so afraid to make the wrong decision. You know, you, I think like I was saying this on a different episode recently, but like, I think a lot of times we're more motivated to um, not fail in the decision than we are to even get it right. And so like when we see all these options, we're like, Oh my God, there's all these ways that I could get it wrong. You know, I could get the wrong wall thickness on my tubes or I could put the wrong parts on it, the wrong color. Like, uh, and let's be honest. Most people don't know what any of that means. Yeah. You know, and, and something I've, I kind of, so one of my thoughts, since we're going back and forth talking about art and bikes, like, um, to me, there was a time when artists dictated what art was, and uh, we've shifted into an era when the market tells the artist what they want, and so <laughs> the artist starts making what sells, and all of a sudden you have this real homogenization of art, where, like, you know, thanks to, like, um, the big art fairs, Art Basel and stuff like that, you start to just see people knocking off each other's stuff because it's what sells. Or yeah. like in art school, I saw people who like at our fairs, they would sell a painting and then they would never ever do a different painting again. Like yeah. the market told them what their art was. And I don't like that. And I think that there's a certain point at which one thing that I do appreciate about people that come to me is they're like, I love what you do. You know, how, how do I buy in? And I'm like, cool. Like, I think, you know, based on their writing, obviously, and what they're looking to do, but I'm like, wouldn't this be cool? We'll do this. Like, you don't need all that. You could just, like, have a nice city bike. And I get to, like, act as a tastemaker instead of having somebody be like, this is the tube set I want. This is the stuff. You know, it's like some people are very particular, and it's great. But, like, a lot of people, you know, you go to a restaurant, and you're like, I don't know what you order for me. It's like people (laughs) want somebody who knows better to be like, 
why else would you get the chef prefix? You know what I mean? Because I don't know what a chef is going to come up with. And if somebody was only, if I was only providing what somebody else asked me for, I would never have made a winged victory. You know, yeah. like that was something I felt like needed to happen. And, and I think in the same way, like I would love if more people were like, I've seen what you can do, like just make me something awesome. And I want to get this kind of riding out of it. You know, to me, that would be totally sufficient. Um, these are the colors I really am attracted to everything else. Like, you know what to do. Cause I do, you know, I'm a frame builder in the sense that like, yeah, I know what kind of tubing you're going to need for that performance. I know like I'll make you some sweet lugs that no one else has done before because that's what I try to do for each bike. And we're going to provide for the kind of riding that you want, you know? Yeah. And to me, that would be getting to be the artist, the person who has the vision and somebody else comes in and says, like, I want to support, I want to participate in this vision. Here's some money. Make awesome. You know? Yeah. When I talked to John Coletti yeah. on the show a couple of weeks ago, he was saying that, you know, when, when it works well, that's sort of what happens. It's like you, if you're a little bit, I don't know exactly how he said it, but, you know, like sort of if like you're true to what it is that you're interested in and you explore that, then uh, the customers that come to you have sort of self-selected for that, that like, what they see in your right. work already resonates with them. And so they don't need to like try and tell you how to do your job because they've already self-selected for a builder whose philosophy resonates with them. And so, you know, that's the, I guess that's like the, the, um, uh, the virtue of like being true to yourself is that eventually uh, you should be right. attracting the people for whom that resonates. And that's the curse of, of not being true to yourself is that you're going to find yourself, if you're successful, quote successful, you're going to find yourself surrounded with people who never really liked what you had to offer in the first place. That's an interesting point. I think I'm working towards that uh, self-selectingness. And, and to be honest, like also just sort of starting to get to a point where I really know what it is I want to do. You know, like I have a drawer full of precast lugs that I will never use. Um, cause I don't, I don't want to, there's to me, that's not fun. Yeah. Even modifying the lugs, like that's not fun. Like I want to start from a blank and see what comes out of it. Um, and you know, like I've started to realize like if you want to Porter cycles, it's going to be like, custom fabricated lugs it's going to be a paint job that i produce and it's going to be a design and you know a geometry that is suited to the thing that you want to get out of that bike and i want to think as far as like the full build like i love people like chapman who like really do the full vision you know mm -hmm. like are we doing a touring bike because like this is the stuff that you need you know and be like, oh, are you doing a city bike? Cool. Like, this is the stuff that you need for that. And, um, I mean, I would love somebody to ask me to build them a track bike. I feel like that would be so fucking <laughs> getting back to, like, a minimal origin, you know. Yeah. Um, but what I'm excited by right now is, like, the touring bikes, you know. Um, but anyway, all that to say, like, I think um, it's it's exciting to finally, after all this time, feel like if if I was to say that's not really a Porter cycles because I didn't do all this stuff. Like to be able to say like that is a Porter cycles. Cause I got to do all of the things that I think are awesome, including some beautiful racks and like maybe a custom stem too. Then you get the full picture. Like after that I can let it go. And you know, I like to think of what 
you know, I like to even know what some of these handlebars are going to be before I get going. So I don't like yeah. to judge reach and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it's, Th- it's more like it's taken a long time to even get to a point where I could say what it is that I am doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, for me too, um, with my building process for a long time, I just loved the idea of making bikes and I thought all sorts of bikes were beautiful and I liked fabrication and I just wanted to get into it. And what I struggled with for a long time was like, uh, just like, you know, getting to know what was my favorite thing and like what made the most sense to me. And I would see somebody make an argument for like why you ought to do things this way or why they loved this process. And I'd say, Oh, that's cool. I get that. That makes sense to me. But like, I didn't know if it, like, I guess for me, like I, I would say the majority of the time that I spent getting to know frame building and getting up to speed with it, I still had never really had a very clear vision of what I thought like Cobra frames were going to look like or something. Like I think toward the end of it, I was getting a clearer idea that like, I really liked like the old fat chance mountain bikes that had single bend rear ends. And I really liked, uh, you know, like more simple, uh, solid color paint jobs and certain kinds of fades. And like, it was sort of like sort of starting to homogenize in my brain that I was getting that picture. But like, it just takes, I think a long time, uh, to develop that for me. It did. Maybe that isn't the same way for everybody. I remember digging into your feed at one point and I think you'd started off or you'd showed some, past photos of some bilaminate stuff and yeah. more like brazing and and sleeves kind of things and then you moved towards tig welding you yeah. you like really fell in love with tig welding when you got there yeah so i had the opposite i i was i got into frame building thinking like i'm gonna knock out frames i'm just gonna tig weld this shit together and i'm good to go <laughs> and i it was like i did i've done maybe two like that and one of them was like a winter just shredder that was meant for i was calling it the sludge muncher and because it was a horrible that. winter and I needed something. <laughs> and then in my very first frame, I TIG welded. <clears throat> After that, I had realized that I do not care for TIG welded bikes. And it's not to say that I don't like other people's bikes. I love seeing some beautiful dimes and all that stuff. And I'm all for, you know, just welding it together. But like for me, that wasn't good enough. That yeah. was like, I I went back to the torch, which I hadn't done since I was saying like, I, you know, when I took my intro to metal course when I was a teenager and like learned gas welding, you know, mm-hmm. oxyacetylene welding. And I went back and like, as like a very proficient TIG welder, realized that's not what I want to put into my bikes. And I went back to the basics and like relearned how to braise things, you know, and like showed up to Johnny Coast shop who thankfully is nearby and was like, what's this brazing thing? How show me? <laughs> and, and, you know, I still struggle with Philip raising and i still struggle with like stuff that is you know construction styles when it comes to brazing but like fabricating lugs sleeves you know mixing your brass and your silver and like shaping stuff like that's what i get off on i don't like just yeah sticking the tubes together and, and welding yeah so it was interesting that like something i was so proficient at and did all the time was not the in a, an equivalent intro into my bikes yeah. It's what I make my money doing during the day, but it's not what I it's it doesn't have the same artistry that I fiend for when it comes to bike construction, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating to see what, what takes and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, when I first saw, I think, uh, some of the first custom bikes I saw was like, uh, uh, Ian Sutton used to do Icarus cycles and, uh, some other folks yeah, who were I doing like lugs and bilaminates and, and fillets and, oh man, it just spoke to me and you don't, you don't walk into a bike shop and see some mass produced bike with that stuff, that stuff. I mean, lugs on older bikes, but like these, these things are labor intensive and expensive at scale. And so you don't see them. And that's part of what makes the, uh, the like, you know, handmade bike kind of special is that it's, it's using a total, it's a different form. And, uh, and these things are really, they're like more finished, you know, the finish work is there and, uh, things are just kind of more worked over and more pretty. And so that spoke to me a lot in the beginning. And I think what spoke to me over time about TIG welding and stuff that didn't initially speak to me is just that I, I just love machines, as you can, I'm sure, understand. And yeah. I love, like, making tools and fixtures. <laughs> and I love the idea of, like, having a machine-oriented process where you cut this thing and you machine that thing and there's numbers and everything just kind of locks in. And at that point, well, you might as well just light it up with a with a TIG arc, you know, but... uh but yeah, I absolutely right. understand that like part of what makes custom bikes special is that finish work and that handwork. And if that's what speaks to you, then, you know, brazing your bikes together is like the obvious choice. Yeah, I'd say so. That it's just interesting to me, like how I started in one place. And, and I think similar to what you were just saying about the machine process, Yeah. like when I got into it, um, you know, my intro into bike building was effectively throwing out my first like super janky ass thing that would make one style of bike and like bought aluminum and used my neighbor's milling machine and like built a fixture. So I built my bike fin. And so like, for me, it wasn't just the nature of like, Oh, I can shape tubes and put them together. It was also like, Oh wow. I need to go way further back. Like I need to learn how to <laughs> do machining. I need to like build fixtures. I need, you know, it's like, when you think about it, you're like, I'm just going to buy a bike fixture and then I can be a bike builder. It's like, no, (laughs) there is so it's like the deepest rabbit hole. And I just chose to say like, whatever I thought I knew, throw all of that out and, and really learn the process, you know? And that was like buying my own machines, learning how to fix them, like learning how to upkeep that stuff, like Mm -hmm. learning how to do anything of any kind of accuracy and then, and then building all this stuff up. And I have so much fun doing that stuff as I know you do. Yeah that I kind of just got wrapped up in doing that for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, years, um, <laughs> build like one bike a year, throw out all of the stuff you'd built or modify all of it and then build another bike the next year. Yeah. And it's like, there's good reason why I've taken a long time to make much many bikes, but, yeah. but then you get to a point of real ownership. And I think that that's, that's the thing that I didn't see coming when I got into it, where I really wanted to own my process and I wanted to have some authority in the choices that I was making. And, yeah. and if that meant the radius seat tubes and aligning those to the wheel the right way, or if it meant, um, you know, having the right stuff around to be able to cut lugs and shape lugs, they get down to lingerie. You need to like figure out how to hold that thing while you're cutting it, <laughs> and, you know, filing. Yeah. And it's like all of those little steps in the process are what I'm in love with. Yeah. And so then you see the outcome of that work and most people are just like, cool, pretty lug, you know, mm-hmm. for me, I see all of that time and energy that went behind to get to the point where you can make that delicate, beautiful thing and have it just be perfect. Yeah. I mean, perfect is a very relative term by my standards, but yeah, to, to, to the 
point where you can walk away and not come back in the morning and look at it and be like, mm, it's not there yet. <laughs> and so that to me was probably is still probably my, the thing that satisfies me the most is like really seeing somebody's work like Icarus or like, you know, all these different people and just being like, that's not possible. Like, how did you carve a feather <laughs> and make the dropout fade up into a feather? What? Like, it's just magic, you know? Mm -hmm. And learning how to be a magician through your own, you know, sweat and, like, effort, like, that's satisfying. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, and something I don't need to make a ton of money to get the joy out of that. Yeah. Something I think about a lot... Uh, when I when I had Mark from Paragon on the show and he was really emphasizing uh, how cool it is when when you know he he can partially his business partially just enables hobby builders and how like you know you used to have to really want to make a career out of it to, to to ever do it and now the education is more accessible and the stuff's more accessible yada 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 and and how satisfying of of a hobby it can be and I just think about that all the time now how like yeah like what a what a satisfying thing it is, you know, to be able to, you know, a, a, a great meal. If you cook a great meal in your kitchen and you sit down to eat it, that feels damn good. You know, the food just tastes better. Oh, yeah. It's just, oh, I love it, you know, and it's the same thing with building a bike. You know, if you build, if you build a bike, even if somebody else says, well, that's dumb, I don't like that. You should like, that's ugly or whatever. But if it's, <laughs> if it's what you wanted and if you were the one who, who tried 10 wrong ways before you got it right for how to like hold this tube for brazing or something like by the end of it, uh, you know, you might've, you might've wanted to pull your hair out along the way, but, uh, when you finish it, it, it feels pretty damn good. And I think, uh, there's, there's something really big to be said for, there's a lot to be said for like a hobby or a career or anything that can make you feel that satisfied. And, uh, it is like the, the work and the, maybe the struggle along the way or something that ends up making the result that satisfying. I agree. And I think that what I was just thinking while you're saying that is that the lesson that I think there's not enough of in society nowadays is just the beauty of patience, you know, and, and being patient enough to be like, all right, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. I'm going to scrap this for tonight and come <laughs> back to it. And like, I guess I'll try that again tomorrow. And if you extend that to years yeah. and decades, like you can't, be into metalwork if you have no patience and yeah. i think that the people who try to like spend a day in the shop and they're like this is hard and you're like leave just leave <laughs> you know the people like i love there's some meme about like what some somebody was like watching a skateboarder try a trick like over and over and over again and they finally got it after like ten thousand tries and he's like we need a skateboarder to be president you know <laughs> and it's like yeah we need patient people who are willing to try and fail so many times and not get discouraged to the point where they stop. Yeah. And so like, I have to, I'm saying that as a lesson to myself as, as well as hopefully whoever might take something from that, but like nothing is easy. Like you want to be an artist. You want to be a bike builder. You want to do all this stuff. Like it's just work. You know, it's like, I wish I was a beautiful Brazilian girl who could just like hang out on a beach and get paid to get photos taken of her, but I'm not, <laughs> you know, like I have to try harder. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, not to say that's bad or to put it down, but like, um, these are not things that are you're just born with, you know, you yeah. might have some predispositions to things. You might have some like natural abilities in some ways, but it's, there's no better t-shirt than failure. 
And like, when you really just go for it and are patient with yourself and you're like, I must have the thing that's in my brain in front of me and I'm going to work until I get there. That's patience. That's when you learn something. And, and hopefully that's when you really have something to offer somebody else. Cause like, you know, this is not a solo affair. Like there's people out there who have done it before and are willing to teach you what they know and like share that kind of wisdom that comes with trial and error. And, and I hope that, you know, I get there. I hope I get to the point where like, I'm just like, yeah, you could do it like that. But in my experience, this was what didn't work out so well about that. And I tried it a different way and I got better results and I'm curious to see what you come up with. Then I have, you know, the humility to like listen to somebody else and I have the humility to recognize that I'm not going to get it right every time. And I think that does extend to all aspects of your life when you really get that lesson, wherever it comes from. Yeah. 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 It's satisfying. You know, uh, today in my shop, I had a little project. I fabbed up this like handle for this thing. And it's the first time I flipped on my TIG welder in, I don't know, four months or something. And I just forget sometimes how satisfying it is to make something. And this is like, you know, I didn't have plans for this. I didn't copy something I had seen before. I just looked on the scrap shelf and I kind of figured it out and, uh, man, it's so fun. <laughs> it's like, I take for granted how awesome it is to have a shop to be able to do this work. And, uh, what, what a good feeling. Yeah. And I mean, that does catch us up to the current situation. We haven't really talked about the fact that we're all in a, like a universal lockdown around COVID-19 and exactly. coronavirus. And yeah. And you've been man, doing, I have, I was just going to follow what you were saying. I am overwhelmingly thrilled that my lifestyle is is social distancing and that i literally live blocks from my shop and i can come to my place and i have knocked out so much stuff that i've wanted to do and it required emails not coming in phone calls not coming in not chasing other people's problems around to just get to do that you know to look on my rack and see oh yeah i've got this stuff i'm gonna make this thing oh my god the satisfaction of just getting the self produce things is absolutely mind-blowing yeah <sighs> yeah absolutely yes. uh 100 you know my shop uh is you know i work by myself and um there have been thoughts in my head before about like hiring people and i'm not really there yet and that's a can of worms but like that would just be such a messy situation for me to have to to be in right now and i i'm not in that situation and i'm so glad i don't need to be responsible for someone else and that i also uh you know the the space that i'm in is i work by myself anyway all the time it's it's such a blessing to have this little tiny tiny corner of the the world that's like mine what do you call it the liberty bunker yeah yeah it's the like freedom bunker the the three-phase liberty bunker which is a joke three but, phase liberty bunker. but yeah i mean it's <laughs> it's like a commercial building that i i rent like they had added cold storage like a garage it's like a one and a half two car garage or something that they added onto this building so the owner previously could like store his boat or something and the building has three phase and so i started renting it and i insulated it and all this stuff it has has three phase which is amazing because it looks like a garage but um, makes all the difference in the world when you can plug in your big machines. So, uh, yes. Yeah. I've got a bunch of phase converters to do that in my, my building. I wish I had three phase in here, but yeah, well, phase had to converters pull all the cool have, old switches off of things. Yeah. That's the, that's the shame. Those are some of my favorite things about these 50 year old machines I've had is the ka-chunk, ka-chunk, 
like the the Alan Bradley and um, Cutler Hammer switches on these things are so cool. <laughs> I know. But uh, yeah, you know, we could descend into some severe machine door three right now if you want to. But go let's not. Let's talk about. <laughs> Uh, the project that you've had going in your shop the last couple days, uh, you know, with with our ill preparedness for uh, pandemics such as this, uh, just basic personal protective gear uh, is in very short supply, yeah. which is a huge problem. is really unfortunate. I mean, my mom is a, is a working nurse in Michigan, and uh, she doesn't work in a hospital; she works in a clinic. But like, I I mean, everybody's thinking about this situation that we're in. Uh, yeah. You are building. Uh, face shields in your shop and you've been building quite a few of them. Uh, tell us about that project. Yeah. So um, I'll be honest, like when this whole thing started happening at first, I was like sick, like, and also like funneling my nervous and like anxiety energy and my like walking dead fanaticism into making bladed weapons. And that was sort of how I managed you know, some of my anxiety at first was just like building an arsenal. And I was like <laughs> in here and I've, I've been thinking about the whole PPE thing. And then a friend put up a DIY kit. Um, uh, it's a friend that runs a furniture shop insect and um, really rad women who run the, the company. And uh, you know, her partner works in the medical industry. And so they kind of teamed up to think of like a, a pretty easy DIY face shield. And I saw it and I was like, thank you. Like, this is where I've needed to put some of my, my energy and my ability. Cause like, like yeah. we were just saying, like I have a shop, I, I'm used to doing fab stuff every day and production is like so second nature to me. And, um, and so I kind of just took to it and, and I looked at the design and I, you know, went to my favorite supplier, McMaster car and, oh, yeah. um, and got everything from the single source, which is great because it minimizes impact on factory workers and delivery people instead of getting like 10 different, you know, deliveries from Amazon, which I do not support. Sorry, mm -hmm. I could go on a rant about that. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so we started making, the other thing that was really bumming me out was that uh, I know that people need something, right? But like a lot of the stuff that's getting made as a, as a stopgap and effectively to provide for the problem in general by these like smaller maker shops is disposable shields. And I'm just, I can't get behind the, the just filling of landfills and like that much plastic getting thrown out every single day. And even just walking around the streets here, like you see gloves and masks and all sorts of shit everywhere. And I haven't even seen like the hospital dumpsters. Yeah. And so we were like, you know, working on getting materials that were a little bit more robust, chemical resistant, you know, stuff that you could disinfect and wear again. And so we just started doing um, a, what am I trying to say? Um, sustainable version of the face shields. So that instead of trying to provide a single doctor with like 50 masks that would only last like, you know, a month and a half, give them one and have it be a good mask that they can keep wearing. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so we started doing that last week and, and what's also crazy about it is that, um, the scarcity of materials, like yeah. we've already gone to V3 of the types of shields that we're making because I couldn't get enough of the AC insulation foam that padded the forehead. And then we couldn't get enough of a double stick tape that we needed. So it's like all of a sudden you get to the point where you're like, we've now redesigned it twice in order to use the available materials on hand yeah, and streamlined it. So instead of it being like a $6 item or $650 item, 
uh, we can make these now for like $2 a piece. And I know that there's people that are doing them for cents, but they're disposable. And I just can't yeah. do that. It's just, I'm not a, a laser cutter shop. I do everything analog here and manual machining and stuff like that. So we were just trying to do what we could with box cutters and, you know, just templates and just keeping it really simple, stupid and, and just making stuff work. And it's been really satisfying because like, you know, you take the stuff out of a box, make it into a thing, put it back in the box that it came in all nice and like individually sealed and everything. And like, I literally loaded up my cargo bike and biked it down to a hospital and handed it to a doctor. And it's like, yeah, how fucking satisfying is that? Like, yeah. And to know that, you know, 50 people at that hospital and like another, you know, a friend of mine who in the bike community picked up 25 the other day and brought them to his uh, fiance in New Jersey. who She works in an ICU and like her whole team now has one, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, Whoa, like, I didn't, I didn't make a thousand of these a day, but like the ones that I've made are going to last somebody through this problem, you know? Yeah. And that's super satisfying. Um, and I'm also, you know, this is like trying to do something good with the privilege that I have, which is not only that I had money saved. And so like, I'm not in the same financial crisis. A lot of people are in right now. Not like I'm fine, but like I'll be fine. Yeah. And I have the privilege of having a shop where I can do this. And I have the privilege of a supply line that I can plumb to find stuff, even if it's coming from as far away as like Georgia. And, and I have friend, a couple people who I know have been safe and quarantining safely that can come here and we can share space and make some stuff happen. Yeah. Um, and that's been really cool. Cause now instead of me being in my head being like, cool, like, you know, like basically on some like murder weapon mode, like just taking that same energy <laughs> and directing yeah. it at something positive. Yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, hopefully it'll have, you know what, Joe, even if it doesn't, even if it's just a, a small thing, I was talking to my girlfriend about this. It's like when, if you put on a sweater that your grandmother made, you might hate that sweater, but the love that went into it is the kind of thing that you're actually wearing. And I think that people knowing that we're out here, like, you know, in support of hospital workers who are yeah. literally the front line of this whole thing. Like, I think that that's a lot already to just keep people's morale up and to let them know that they're like not alone yeah. and that we're all like trying to do what we can to help out. Like that to me yeah. is, is big. Yeah. It's, uh, I think this is related enough that I should mention it or it, something I'm thinking of with that is that because of the situation with my shop, I don't really run into anybody. And so, uh, I feel like, you know, I don't think there's really a responsibility on me to literally stay home. I think that the objective, right, is to not spread the virus. And so so I still keep come out here and I'm just very right. thoughtful about, you know, uh, no stops along the way. And, you know, if I need to pump fuel, then, you know, uh, the, the things that you would do to, to whatever. Anyway, that doesn't feel like I'm expressing that much solidarity because, like, I can continue to do what I've always done, more or less, with probably right. less less revenue, less sales going out. But, like, I can continue to do the things I did day to day, whereas, like, people I know who work in restaurants uh, are out of work. People who work in healthcare are sort of in hell. You know, it's like, uh, it, it feels like... Totally what have I sacrificed? Like, where is the, where's the solidarity coming from, uh, in, in this situation where everybody is like giving up so much and yet like, you know, like what are you supposed to do? Just like, um, it, it's, it's a weird time for so many reasons. <laughs> yeah. For so many reasons. It's such it a, truly is. such a weird time. 
Um, yeah. Well, and to be honest, like, sorry, go for it. No, I don't know what I was going to say. I was just going to say, to be honest, like, um, I was kind of rejoicing for a bit there, you know, not that people are dying and like all of it's happening, but like, I, I feel so sucked up in like the hamster wheel of capitalism most of the time that I was like, we, I don't have to like answer emails or deal with this stuff. Right. You know, it's like, part of me was like rejoicing and just having some quietude. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think it was like a sign off on the topic. Like I hope that we get to a new normal and not the old normal. And I hope that like, you know, social care expands in terms of like, you know, watching the government just flounder this whole thing. You know, to me, it's like, it's the makers and it's the creative people and it's like social structures that are on the civilian level that win the day. And I just really would love to see a real blooming and blossoming of people like believing in each other and supporting each other and um yeah like to me that would be a positive that could come out of this really horrendous situation yeah <clears throat> just a stronger social fabric yeah there was a thing i saw on the internet uh some artist had uh had made a very beautiful sort of illustration of a phrase that was something uh something to the effect of like you know as as we sort of resume like as we come out of this and we like can kind of come back into like what we have. I forget how they expressed it beautifully, but it, the, the sentiment was that like you know we're going to be able to kind of resume a normal again, and like let's be like considerate of like what we bring back into our lives and what we return to and how we return to it because like this is sort of a unique experience uh, for most of us that like it has completely disrupted our lives and unlike an event like Hurricane Katrina or something, it's not really localized. It's global and everybody's experiencing it to one degree or another at the same time. And so like, mm. you know, it's, it's a, it's a moment where we can kind of pause and reflect and um, uh, you can have sort of like a perspective shift and uh, you know, you can do something with that and you can, you can let that matter to you. And, and probably other people are going to be like less, le- like less quick to, to, to write it off and say that it's silly of you to right. have some like religious uh, experience and, and see the world differently or something. Right. Yeah. I hope, I hope that, I hope it's a reset to the positive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, things, things are changing and things will change. And I'm, I'm, I have this morbid curiosity to, to watch it all unfold. Cause it's uh it's just such a unique experience. Um, well, I've got a touring bike and lots of bladed shit, so I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that bike tour. Some, I remember I saw you at NABS this time last year in Sacramento and uh, you were right across the aisle and, you know, the, the beautiful bike and you won Best New Builder and you had said that you were going on a bike tour after. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, you're out west. You might as well ride your bike a little bit. And I kept seeing updates and it took me a while before I realized, like, you meant like a bike tour. <laughs> like it was three months. Like, <laughs> tell us about that. That's yeah, uh, that's home. amazing. I did a three week bike tour once and uh, that was that was the time of my life. I'll never have that much time on a bike again, probably. Uh, but like, what was yours like? Oh my God, <clears throat> we could start this whole thing over just saying that. Um, the bike tour was one of the most, probably maybe the most life affirming experience I've ever had. And it was, um, you know, it was, it was wrapped up in, in going to NABS and it being in California. And I had been talking with Rudy from uh, Black Magic Paint about working on a bike together. Um, 
And then he was like, cool, you have an idea on which one? And I was like, oh, I'd love to do this touring bike idea that I've been thinking of. And so the way it played out was like from, from the time we'd said that, I think to six months later was NABS. And, um, and so I built this touring bike, sent it off to Portland so that those guys could paint it and they were going to show it in their booth. And then I started thinking about it more and I was like, well, I'm going to have this touring bike in California. Like it would make so much sense if I could just ride that thing home. That would be so awesome. And so this idea just started like building to the point where I was like, I'm going to do that. Um, and so then what I realized was that I had built myself a touring bike, never rode it cause I had to send it straight away to Portland and had never built it up. So <laughs> like that's kind of nerve wracking. And <laughs> the most I had done to prepare was like riding a little bit more than I would normally, you know, and like going to the park and stuff and broken the saddle and some riding shoes a little bit. Um, but other than that, zero preparation and, you know, spent a bunch of money at REI, packed my boxes for nabs and stuffed a bunch of my camping gear in with the frames as padding and shipped it all to Sacramento to my friend Addison's place, Addison's Bicycle Repairium, and basically camped out with him for like, you know, I think almost three weeks between getting ready for nabs, showing at nabs, and then a couple of weeks after building up the bike and kind of getting myself broken in a little bit. Um, and then launched off. <laughs> yeah. like, totally insane concept. I had never done any bike touring before. I had never, I think the only overnight camping I had done was like friend camping, you know? Yeah. Um, like not even bike to camping. And uh, yeah, and two basically two months and a week or so of actual riding um, made my way down to the bottom of California from Sacramento <clears throat> to LA stopped along the way and visited with some people and then started off East from there and went um, out across the desert. Um, no. Yeah. I forget how it goes now, but basically went on the Southern tier of the grand Canyon, like wow. all the way, um, from LA out West and like through all this really ragged terrain, super fun. And up into like from Navajo territory after the Grand Canyon went up to kind of beelined up towards the Rockies to go visit my brother in Boulder and couldn't actually cross the summits, but basically like got to do everything else in between. Uh, Cause it was still snowed in. And, um, and then went from Colorado North, which was a terrible idea, but I went with it <laughs> along the 90 line um, and went straight across Nebraska and into, you know, towards the Great Lakes and then circled like kind of under the Great Lakes and uh, along the southern tier of New York back into New York City. So that's like the super quick version, but basically did like most of the north to south and then went back up from south to north and, you know, <laughs> continued east from there. That's awesome. It sort of did like a cross and the vertical minus Texas <clears throat> and through the most hellacious late winter, like wet spring, super crazy winds, like really, really insane conditions for a lot of it and um, learned a lot along the way about myself and my thresholds and like what I'm capable of is pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. Sounds like the experience of a lifetime. I mean, like, I don't see how you could ever do something like that and not have it 
really shift your perspective and not have it be like a point of reference when you consider any other like obstacles or experiences? It's been a year and I still would say that like every single day, some little snippet of that trick comes to mind, you know, or like some cresting a hill and seeing a landscape or like, you know, just moments along the way come to me like every single day. And, um, I've, I took a shitload of photos too. I ended up taking a lot of panoramics. It became like kind of my, the way I could document that kind of landscape. And, um, I do, part of the idea was when I came home, I was going to do a whole book out of the panoramics. Cause like I was posting on Instagram, but it's a super limited format. Yeah. And it was, you know, putting up little snippets and a bunch of people followed along and really like felt like they were on tour with me, which was really cool to get some of that feedback. Um, but I do hope at some point to actually do a wide format book where I get to put a bunch of those panoramics and stories together. Yeah. Um, and even if it's just for my own interests, like I think I would think it'd be, that's one of those things I would really, really love to do um, to kind of not just reflect on that, but to like, you know, just have something for my own life, like history, you know, yeah. I don't think I've done that many things that are book worthy, but I feel like that yeah. crossing country was definitely a profound experience. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I'm sure it would have to be that un- kind of unrelatedly. I think there was, I think Jeff Bridges, the actor has a photo book of panoramas that he's made that I saw at somebody's house once. Uh, it was pretty sweet. <laughs> it's like, it like, you know, he's like on set of the whatever movie. Pretty cool. Oh man, I would love to see that actually. Yeah, yeah, no, check the it dude? out. Yeah, the dude, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, I don't know if he had panoramas from that film, but definitely a lot of other ones that he was in that were famous that he had taken. He's a pretty good, pretty good photographer, from what I remember. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> there's some things you can't really uh, explain. You know, it's like if you show a photo, at least you can get some kind of sense of it. But yeah, even then, it was just like there's no way. I mean, I could tell you every single story I could remember and it still doesn't really add up to like what it would be like to do it. And, um, I do hope to get to do more of that. I have other trips that I have in my dream book, but, um, man, that was, uh, truly epic. That's kind of like, that's kind of like taking a sailboat across the ocean or something. I mean, that's like such a, just the, the sheer amount of time and the distance and like the, the sort of, you know, test of your own, uh, ability and stuff. That's a, such an epic scale to it all. That's uh, so cool. Um, I think, you know, like when you're like the bike tour I did was after my first year of college or something. And so like, I didn't really have a job between years of school or not like a serious job that I couldn't get some time off of or something. And so, you know, as you get older in yeah. life, uh, if you have kids, if you have family, if you have s- steady work, it becomes harder to do that. And so I think that's like, especially, uh, remarkable like it you know to to like value your own time on earth and your own experience enough to say like yeah it's gonna be hard but like damn it it's worth it like i gotta you know i gotta do this while i'm here yeah that was one of the most expensive three months and what's funny is that it was like i prepaid for my whole life here in brooklyn to exist while i was gone (laughs) and it was a, a substantial chunk of money to have to pony up but like you couldn't possibly tell me that the experience that I had was worth that much. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like whatever, like I have never, I started work as pr- probably a preteen, you know what I mean? And have like supported myself all the way through college, all the other shit. And I have never in my life, I took, I didn't exchange program 
in France when I was in college. And I had to, I paid for that dearly, but that was like probably my other most favorite time of my life. And this, that three months getting to take it off, go to NABS, like win the award yeah. was so rad for best new builder and like the kind of love that everybody was giving me. And, uh, <clears throat> and to get to just have that time by myself, whatever I had to do to achieve that time off was so amply paid back in the experience that I got out of it that I could never, yeah. Oh my God. I, I would, I don't care about money. I care about the experience that allows me. Yep. And that is a perfect example of like money could never buy you that, but like that, that experience was worth every cent that I spent to pay rent where I wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I got to be away. So, um, let's talk a little bit about the bikes that you're working on this week. Uh, uh, and then, and then we can wrap up here. Uh, cause I saw that you, yeah. you said in at least one post about how you realized you were out of oxygen or re- nearly out of oxygen, like in your, in your welding, <laughs> welding bottle, welding tank, oxy, oxyacetylene. And so, uh, you were doing your process different than normally that you were doing all this prep work, uh, prior to brazing anything. Mm. And that by mixing it up, you found some, some benefit or something refreshing about that process. Uh, what are you building and, and yeah. how is that going? Uh, so basically, um, the last bike I built was my son of Liz, and it's a touring bike. And Liz is quite short, so I had to do a bunch of um, I had to do all of the things that you do with really small frame construction to kind of like modify rake and head tube angle and all this stuff, and consulted with some other builders on how to build a bike for a pretty small person. And having done all that work and gotten to do the run that we did for her, I had a design sitting and waiting for the person I'm building this bike for now, which is my girlfriend, um, who also is effectively the same exact size as Liz, which is amazing. Um, so all of this like design work that I'd put in, I now get to do a second round basically off of that same drawing, which is really cool. So Liz's bike is a touring bike. It's designed for the same kind of stuff I did. It's an 11 by one system. Um, so it's like, hybridizing that sort of like mountain trail kind of like drivetrain with a road bike, wider tires, 1.75s on 26 inch wheels and um, disc brakes. And so, uh, you know, the same kind of kit is what I'm putting into this new one. And so to speak to uh, what you're just saying, so Liz's bike literally took me like nine months and it's because I had a super insane year work-wise And then my father passed away in January, which was a total heartbreaker and derailed a lot of stuff that I was doing. Um, The, you know, just thing after thing kept happening that was just really fucked up my ability to pay attention to like just getting her bike done. And and so then of course, like now we're in the middle of coronavirus and I've got plenty of time on my hands and, and effectively too much kind of nervous energy that's not being sucked up elsewhere. <clears throat> so I was like, I'm going to build my girlfriend a touring bike so we can go ride around and, you know, if things go really belly up, then we can take off together. It'll be great. Uh, again, I'm like my apocalypse, like fever, I think has been there for a long time. And this is just allowing it to kind of germinate more. <laughs> so anyway, so, so here I am like making face shields and having a serious problem with delivery because things just keep getting screwed up or something's supposed to show up and it doesn't. And I was like, I'm just going to start this bike. And so 
I started in on it and I'm going to, you know, I'm starting to cut pieces and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to braise this together, check my tank. And obviously I'd like left the tank on and my, my, uh, torch had been like not quite fully sealed up. And so like whatever little bit I had left in my oxygen tank was depleted. It was just red zeros. I was like, God damn it. And so the beauty of it was that all right, I can't join anything. So let's just go real deep on getting all the stuff ready, which is like, cutting tubing for the lugs, cutting the main tubes themselves, um, you know, doing all the fun notching and like weird stuff that I can get done without actually getting to join anything. So I had sub assembly after sub assembly stacked up between the fork, the chain stays, the seat tube, like all the different things that I could. And, and then I realized like, Oh my God, if, if I just did it like this, instead of like, notching the seat post and then or the seat tube and like joining that and cleaning that and doing the whole thing and then putting it you know then putting it in so i could see a kind of finished thing if i just treat all of it the same way and get all of bits and pieces kind of in a row sitting in their fixtures waiting to get joined i was like all of a sudden all of this stuff is done in the same amount of time it would have taken me to do that one thing and then when you know i got my tank swapped out and the next day i just got to blast through a whole bunch of brazing so instead of like setting up and breaking down all of the different things over and over again to like you know run between machines you know clean up and then brazing and then more cleanup i just got to do it all in kind of waves like you would do a production job Mm -hmm. and uh and it was awesome and now all of a sudden like i don't i don't think i've gotten to spend more than like three days collectively on this bike and i did a custom lug set that's just needs a little bit of cleanup and then they're done all of the tubes are cut and cleaned and done. Water bottle bosses are where they need to be. Like all the stuff, you know, the forks made. And I'm like, shit, this is like, I hope Liz doesn't get mad at me for how long it took me to make her. It's like, <laughs> I was like, maybe I could survive making bikes if I actually just did it smarter. I don't yeah. know. Well, uh, I, I always feel like get some more people ordering. Yeah. I always feel like with, yeah, that, that's probably the hard thing for for most people too. But um, I, I feel like the, you know, if I was ever to build two bikes in a row exactly the same way, uh, the second one would happen in like you know fifteen percent of the time and fifteen percent of the effort is the first one because so much of what I do with every new build or what I always did with every new build was to challenge myself and say, well, this time I'm going to try this method right. and this new standard and I got to make this piece of tooling and you know that's just that's where I would spend most of my time. Totally. And then when I talk to someone like Carl Strong, who's built, you know, thousands of bikes and they tell you how s- speedy they can be. It's like, oh, that, actually that honestly makes a lot of sense. Cause you get that far into it. You don't have that many questions anymore. You don't have that much head scratching. You just, right. There's nothing left to think about. You just do it. <laughs> That's just it. Yeah. And to check back to on our previous conversation, like that's thankfully somewhere where I'm finding myself now. Like, I go to the wall, I pull down the fixture, I feel good about it. I don't feel like I have to modify everything. If anything, maybe I add something that makes it even easier, but like, I'm not, you know, my confidence in my own setup has come a long way. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and the time spent doing a few things on repeat now in terms of like, you know, not the same lug cuts necessarily and stuff like that. But yeah, it's like to get to a point where I don't start and with the assumption that everything's wrong each time is so refreshing compared to how it used to be where I'd be like, I don't trust anything. Like, can I still trust this thing? Even though nothing's changed, is that trustworthy? And, and I'm like, yeah, no, just do the thing. That's where the bosses go. This is where that does, you know, like 
here's how you put your disc brakes on and you like flat mount in the front and the ASO in the back. Great. Stick to that. You know, um, it's just like, there's certain things that just, I should have said post mount, not flat mount. Um, yeah, all of a sudden things are starting to streamline and I feel like that's really refreshing because it used to not be that way. I used yeah. to question whether or not I was cutting the radius of the seat tube to fit the wheel that it was, is the bottom bracket drop different on this one? Do I have to rethink all of that? It's just like the amount of noise <clears throat> has, has come down quite a bit and it is really awesome to get to step up to something and just have confidence in doing it, you know? Yeah. And that's something that has definitely been hard earned, but starting to see the fruits of that now. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just the most satisfying. I even had a moment where I was like <clears throat> this is a funny one. I had a moment where I was like, Oh, I should make a thing to go on my seat tube uh fixture so I can know exactly where my axle point is so I can check you know, check my radius against that. And I look up on the shelf and I'm like, What is that stupid looking piece of flat bar thing over there? And I'm like, Oh, that's the thing that I was about to like make for this. Like I had made it the last time I did it and I'd forgotten <laughs> about it. So I was like, Oh yeah, perfect. Well there you go. And you know, improve that a tiny bit and but it's yeah. like I even surprised myself by already having prepared something and totally yeah. forgetting about it. It was awesome. Yeah, that's that's the best. So that's cool. Bikes are cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, they definitely are. Um, well, uh, I mean, I think that's most of the conversation points that I had lined up. And, um, you know, I guess we, we didn't go a ton into your other work that you do with, uh, you know, the, the furniture and, and different things that you make for architects and different people. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you do a lot of that in your, in your studio in Brooklyn and then you also use it for frame building and, uh, yeah, I don't know what else I want to say about that. It's, it's, uh, it's really cool to get you on the show. Cause I feel like some of those conversations we had at the builder's ball <clears throat> are things that, it gave me a, a sense of where we could take this discussion. And I think uh, a lot of those things we talked about, I think went really well. Yeah. I look forward to talking to you more and uh, not on the show. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All this stuff, honestly, the, the whole business thing, like I, I would love to just dedicate a whole show to just talking about stuff like that. Like, yeah. I'm not telling you what to do, but like for me, I would love to hear from more people about the real, the reality, you know, like yep. sure. Like bikes are awesome. Stuff's cool. But like, how do we do it? How do, how are we doing it? You know? And like, what does this look like? And I don't know, these are things that I battle with all the fucking time. And, yeah. and it does come down to like, whether or not I think I'm doing it wrong, which is like my resting life face. You know, I just always <laughs> think I'm doing it wrong. Um, which makes me try harder, but still it's like, it's a tough one. Yeah. It's, <clears> it's tough <throat> so it's for good me. To see your, your business growing and yeah, well for me, part of what I identified that didn't work so well with my frame building approach and I guess, you know, I either needed to change it or I needed to change, change directions. And so I kind of changed directions. But like, I think part of what drew me into frame building was that I was solving my own problem that like, I wanted a cool, totally. I wanted like a nice way to live in the world that was satisfying and where I got to make something I was proud of. And it produces a product that is, you know, should be valuable to someone else and solve problems for someone else. But I approached it so, so much about like my own interest. And I think that that's how it should be when you're getting started so that you can develop the skill set and so you can find what it is that resonates with you. But I think like as a business model, a lot of what I employ now with 
<clears throat> like my approach to business with what I'm doing now is it's like, I try to be very customer centric in terms of like, you know, like, well, people probably want stuff to ship kind of quickly and people probably want like emails to be answered pretty quickly. And like people that yada, yada, yada. It's like all these things I'm like solving for like, what would be a customer centered business that solves their problems. And I never knew exactly how to square those with like frame building to make it um, exactly like the, the customer driven model, I guess, you know, like where it's like, uh, uh, who is it? Like, um, I don't remember who it was. Someone was saying like, you know, like basically at its most, uh, at its most basic, like a business is a, is, is something that solves a, a problem for people. And, um, and I can see how, like, right. if you didn't have this, this bicycle that was like really beautiful and expressive and fit just right, you know, like that, it, like it speaks to you to be able to throw a leg over and do that. But I'm such a practical person that it's hard for me to relate to that customer in the same way as like, Whereas I can really relate to shop people. And so like I found a business model where totally. what, I, what I produce is something that um, my customer and I uh, get each other. And I think when I was building fancy bikes, uh, custom bikes, I didn't, I didn't always understand who my customer would be or what would compel them to spend their money that way. And like, if you don't understand your customer, it becomes really difficult. And so like, I think that's like, for me, like, how can this, you serve them? Yeah, it's like that was the central question that I never knew how to answer when I was doing frame building was like, uh, I just didn't understand how to relate to my customer. Well, certainly there's a lot of custom by customers out there. I just like, I don't know them. <laughs> Other people right. are in that world. And it's like, that's uh, it's interesting to me. Well, now you're joining the ranks of Anvil and Spudnik and making so many more bikes than you could ever possibly in your life by eating other people in their practice. You know, that's, yeah. that's big. Yeah. Yeah. I really like it. And, um, and I think it suits me well because like I said, with frame building, I was always so much, I felt like I was so much more interested in the process and the tools than I was in the, in the I mean, not to say I didn't like making bikes, but, but you know, maybe, maybe that I means... got to sell my first stem fixture. Hell yeah. Yeah. No, I, I see like the work that <clears throat> yeah. there's, there's a lot of builders who are really good at making tools and I see the, the stuff that you've made. I see the stuff that Eric at myth cycles. There's just a lot of, uh, small builders who make really nifty and cool tools that are honestly as good as or better than anything I was making with my manual machines. And, uh, you know, this is all I've really worked at the last two years or more since I got the CNC machine, but there's a lot of people who would, who would be good at the kind of stuff that I'm doing. I'm sure. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. It's helping a lot of people. Thank you. Yeah. I love doing it and I'm really thankful to be able to. Um, yeah. Anyhow, I uh, <laughs> uh, love the discussion. I don't know what else to say about it, but um, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your show. Yeah. Keep on, keep on, keep on on in, in the city there. And, uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing this, this bike come together. Totally. I look forward to talking more too. Yep.